the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Warren Wilhelm's wife is a real piece of work. They're a fun couple. New York City's First Lady, Shirlene McRae, tweeting out, As attacks on Asian American communities continue, we're asking New Yorkers to show up for their neighbors and intervene when witnessing hateful violence or harassment. I know that can be frightening when you aren't sure what to do or say, but you can learn. I can learn how to become a vigilante. Bernie Getz's day has finally arrived. (laughs) Hey, New York. Vigilante justice has just been endorsed by the uh, first lady, the mayor's wife. Yeah, she wants him to personally physically intervene to stop violent crimes. But that happened nine months after she convinced her husband to get on board with the defund police. So when you try to defund police, who's there to protect the people? Well, you don't need police. Right, because we're just all superheroes, right? Well, you got the vigilantes at least. It's just remarkable. Um we're the guardian angels when you need them. Chicago last year, uh, just 2020, 719, uh, 792 total murders, 719 uh, by way of a perpetrator with a gun, up 53%. Almost 3,500 people shot and wounded last year. That was up 51%. Oh, my God. Uh, so, so far this year, we're a little bit off the pace of last year, thankfully, and probably in part because of how brutal February was. Yeah, the snowstorms. Nonetheless, a person is shot every three hours in Chicago. A person is murdered every 17 hours. We've got um, uh, 110 uh, murders so far this year. And, uh, of course, we've talked quite a bit about uh, other violent crimes that are way up, like carjackings. Up 283%. 103, 103 homicides this year, just to be specific. And 83 high school students, or kids in Chicago have been killed this year, or last year, 83. Eight last year. Yes. Uh, for uh, more on all this about uh, policing, we're pleased to be joined by Jason Johnson, who's a former deputy commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department, currently president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Jason, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Good to be with you. Morning. So... I'm I'm a bit confused because uh, support for Black Lives Matter is going down to a uh, minority of Americans, according to recent survey by Gallup. Uh, more than uh, two thirds of Americans, so supermajority, oppose defunding police. So if they oppose the idea and they oppose the organization that is the primary promoter of the idea and then influencing politicians and so forth, how is it they're making so much progress? It's a a great question. You know, uh, although I think most people, most reasonable people understand defunding the police is not good, they are led to believe through certain mythology that the police are sort of the problem and that the police need all sorts of regulations that would actually uh, sort of disempower them. We already see it happening. 
Chicago, Baltimore, L.A., Dallas, I mean, cities across America, the police are being disempowered, um, officially and unofficially. Prosecutors are being elected that don't want to prosecute. And we see these crime rates that you, you mentioned a few moments ago in all of those cities and more uh, going through the roof. Well, I mean, would you be a police officer, Jay, if you had to choose again? No, no, I wouldn't. You know, and it, it's sad because it, 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 is a, it is a great job. And it was a great job for me for a couple decades, and it was very rewarding, uh, something I, I was drawn to. So many other people, young people are drawn to or have been drawn to historically, but every police department in the country now is really struggling. With, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. They, they can't get people that want to be cops anymore. And unfortunately, the people who do want to be cops who are putting their hands up and saying, I want to do this, many of them, it's just you know, it's because they want a job. It's not a calling as it has been in the past because of, um, you know, they've vilified the entire profession. What was the inflection point for you in Baltimore? Um, let me suggest that one may have been, and because this is an important moment, in the rioting in Baltimore after the uh, Freddie Gray death in police custody, when the then mayor, SRB, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, uh, said that police uh, are to create a safe space for the rioters. I think that sent a really troubling message to the rank and file. These are these are men and women that were on the on the front lines, that were risking their lives, they were working incredibly long shifts just trying to save the city. And then they were told by their leaders uh to, to stand down, take a knee, uh allow people to destroy things. Um and and the mayor's not the only one. <laughs> Moments a uh, days later the state's attorney charged uh, a handful of cops in the death of Freddie Gray, couldn't get a conviction. Um and all the cases were uh, dismissed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all, the, all those officers were ultimately vindicated, both criminally and administratively. They were not uh, they were not found to have engaged in any misconduct, criminal or administrative misconduct, and they're, they're, they all remain on the job today. But it's a different department now than it was then, and um, the crime stats show that. So let's talk about Baltimore as a, as a microcosm. We obviously uh, spend a, a lot of our time talking about Chicago, but it, I think it's interesting for people to hear different perspectives, some similarities, some differences. So uh, some of the similarities, the civilian political leadership you're talking about from the mayor's office to the prosecutor and what happened in Baltimore after the Freddie Gray death uh, was sort of a forerunner to then what happened across America uh, last summer and into the fall. So so uh, can you walk us through what happened in Baltimore and sort of the lessons to be taken away from that? Well, I think it's it's a, it's very you know it's a, a striking parallel to Chicago. Both cities that had a high-profile police-involved incident, the Laquan McDonald case in Chicago and the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, right around the uh, the same time, that led to riots, that led to calls for reform, that led to prosecutions, and uh, and ultimately have led to ill-advised legislation that overregulates the police, that doesn't allow them to do their job, that dissuades people from entering the profession, and for those who are in the profession. Uh, they take a more of a like a uh, like a fireman type approach to crime fighting. Now it's not proactive; it's respond to complaints, address the immediate complaint, and then withdraw in, in an effort to survive. Uh, essentially, uh, both cities also have activist uh, social justice warrior prosecutors in, in Marilyn Mosby and Kim Fox, and that they've had deleterious effects on on the crime in both cities. Shootings, homicides have gone through the roof in both cities, and it's unabated. And there's no call to change that in either city that I'm aware of. There are only a minority of voices that are calling out the problems and saying, we need to address this and we need to do it right now. Yeah, I mean, Kim Fox got reelected even after the whole Jesse Smollett, you know, debacle, too. But what 
you know, besides getting them out of office, what else can we do? Uh, fight back. Uh, there has to be more attention drawn to the, the issues of the social justice prosecutors. My, my organization, the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, we actually produced a paper on this. It's on our website, uh, policedefense.org, where we looked very carefully at the data in Chicago and in Baltimore and in other cities that have social justice prosecutors. We need to bring greater attention to that because I don't think the electorate is quite aware of the very clear connection between these spikes in crime, these massive increases, and the lack of productivity by the prosecutor's offices because they simply don't want to prosecute. They don't want to put people in jail, even, even when they're known violent criminals. Right. And, and, um, and, and I think people have, don't have an appreciation for uh, how many of those sorts of prosecutors are now in office in big cities, Krasner in Philadelphia and Vance in New York and, uh, and, and Bowdoin in San Francisco. We mentioned Fox. We mentioned Mosby. I mean, you're talking about uh, tens of millions of people whose safety, public safety, is in part in the hands of people who don't want to prosecute predators. The, the problem is getting greater and wider spread, and you mentioned a few of the, the big names, but cities large and small across America and even some counties are starting to elect these social justice prosecutors, and they're, they're taking the position that the prosecutor has the ability to nullify you know, substantive crimes uh, relating to drugs or prostitution or trespassing, theft, all of, all of these things that prosecutors are just wiping them out and saying, we no longer enforce these things. Uh, we no longer seek jail terms, even for some people who are prior convicted felons when they engage in, in an act of violence. And it's just, it's a philosophical approach that has caught fire. Um, and it's, it's having really, really bad results. I mean, you look, it's hard to find a city in America that, that, that doesn't have homicides and or shootings up 20, 30 percent in the last year. And um, that is one of the two main factors that are driving. The other main factor, of course, is, is uh, police disempowerment. And, and so uh, as we look ahead to uh, this spring and summer uh, against the backdrop first of the uh, Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, um, but but uh, regardless of outcome there, with what you were suggesting is happening in places uh, across the country, including in Chicago, where we mirrored what was presented by socialists at the federal level that was presented and signed into law here at the state level. All of those uh, changes to, uh, pr- to to make police more exposed to their uh, to civil liability for their actions on the job to. Uh, have more and permanent record keeping about any complaints that can be made anonymously and so on and so forth, all sorts of things that, as you were just suggesting, incentivize police to stay in their cars. What do you anticipate for this summer, regardless of the uh, outcome of the Chauvin trial? Well, there's a confluence of things that are going to be a problem. Uh, One is the weather. Of course, in most cities, uh, especially that experience cold weather in the winter, in the summertime, there tends to be uh, noticeable increase in crime. People are outside. People are uh, more likely to be a victim or might, more likely to commit an act of violence. You, you have the Chauvin trial, which um, you know I, we probably won't be able to get into it too in depth. But there, there is reason to be concerned uh, that the outcome will could cause yep. civil unrest because yep. of some reckless approach in the way the case was was charged and will be tried. Um, and also coming out of the pandemic, so a lot of you know a lot of restrictions are being lifted, and so fortunately a lot of people are able to sort of get back to work, and 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 in doing so, unfortunately, make themselves possibly a victim of violent crime, whereas victims have been hard to come by. Most of these cities' robberies have gone down. It's kind of interesting, even though uh, uh, shootings and homicides have gone up, many many cities' robberies have gone down, and, and I think the the obvious reason there is is there's fewer people 
that are that can be victims and and so we see it we'll see a return of that and the disempowerment of police on top of that with federal and state legislation and so it's a recipe for for great concern i would say well then let's circle back to new york city and the the first lady of new york city she suggested are you ready that witnesses step into the middle of a hate crime or incident engage directly with the person who is being targeted by asking a question like what time is it uh how, how, how do you think that police so how you were trained is that yeah so to try to distract you, hey, what time is it? Yeah, essentially we want to replace police instead of focusing on, you know, making improvements to police, which, of course, we can always make improvements to police. But instead of focusing on that, we want to basically empower citizens to engage, to engage people who are you know, potentially violent people who could lash out, could assault them, could kill them. Um, it's just absurd. It, it's naive. And uh, we really need to kind of get back on track here with, with remembering who, who we've placed the trust in to protect citizens. And that's the police. And we need to we need to get back to that. Well, here's the problem, uh, Jason. Um, I understand from uh, socialist spice girl, Ayanna Presley, who was poorly educated in Chicago before she made mm-hmm. her way to the Northeast. Francis uh, Parker. She uh, she notes and she is a noted criminologist, I understand. Police brutality is the sixth leading cause of death for young black men. So until police stop targeting and executing young black men, we we can't uh, provide any more uh, power or authority to the police. You know, this is I, I use the term mythology. This is the mythology I was, I was speaking of where there's so much rhetoric out there that people, if they don't have the time or the interest to really dig through it and see if there's any validity to it, they wouldn't know otherwise. So to hear that reckless statement being made, which, by the way, is entire is completely false. Uh, they hear much being made about uh, over and over and over, and police are killing uh, unarmed black men, when in fact, those numbers are going down significantly. First off, the numbers are relatively small. I think the police in last year in 2020, uh, they killed something like 20, uh, quote-unquote, unarmed black men. But, you know, unarmed doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't necessary to do, but that, that's the number that everyone focuses on. So it's like 20 out of, you know, you know, a million, a billion uh, contacts, <laughs> something that law enforcement has with people. And uh, the, the numbers are so small, especially when you compare it to the number of black men who are victims of homicide, not, not involving the police. And that, that problem goes completely ignored, and we focus entirely on this very, very small number issue that, you know, we could talk about as adults about ways to even focus more on that. But instead, we, we, um, we just disempower the police, handcuff the police, and expect it to get better. Jason Johnson, former deputy commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department, currently president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. PoliceDefense.org is the website for their content. Jason, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Albert Moeller for townhall.com. As I speak to you, five different women have made charges of some kind of sexual abuse or sexual harassment against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And it tells you something about our times that this is not the biggest scandal or controversy surrounding him. It's true because we're also talking about matters of life and death. As most of you know, a directive from Governor Cuomo's office sent elderly people who've been infected with COVID-19 into nursing homes, a decision that led to widespread death. But as bad as that is, that's not even the biggest scandal. The biggest scandal is the cover-up within the Cuomo administration of the very fact. 
The Times Union newspaper, based in the New York capital of Albany, summed up what should be obvious to all in the title of a recent editorial. Resign, Mr. Cuomo. The political elite should have recognized it a long time ago, but that doesn't make it any less true. It's time for Cuomo to go. I'm Albert Moeller. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For those considering careers in politics and policy.